0: This is WXOJ LP Northampton, 103.3 FM on the air and live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And you're listening to Under the Surface, a talk show with a focus on rarely discussed elements of everyday life. And I'm your host, Amy Landau. Thanks for joining me. Tune in here every Sunday, and I'm on um, from 11 to 12 noon. Today I'm going to be interviewing... Cassandra Kudelaitis. Cassandra is a very close friend of mine. In fact, she's one of my best friends. I've known her for about 30 years. I met Cassandra about a year after graduating college when I moved from New York City to Boston around 1988. I was new to Boston and only about 21 when I met her. We met at the Boston Film and Video Foundation, or BFVF as it was known back then, because I was acting in a friend's Super 8 film. Remember Super 8? probably many of you don't. And if I remember correctly, Cassandra was in the same class and also working on a film project of her own. Cassandra invited me and a friend to have drinks with her. It was a very spontaneous invitation. So the, the three of us went to a bar to hang out. And I remember sitting at the bar counter between the two, of, the two of them and how I just ended up talking mostly to Cassandra, this very striking, poised, self-spoken woman, and kind of leaving the other friend who was very self-absorbed in the dust The other friend, as I recall, just sort of faded out. She didn't seem as interested in the conversation, and it was like I left her island and joined Cassandra's island instead. Cassandra's island was a lot more interesting than the other friend's, so I have to say I never looked back. I've always loved talking to Cassandra and having long, elaborate conversations with her about everything—friendship, family, relationships, books, life. She's just always been a creative inspiration to me in many different ways. She encouraged me to take the Super 8 class back then myself, and when I was stuck on what to do for the film, she helped me figure it out. I remember I was telling her about a dream I had, and she said, that's what you should do the film on, that dream. And I did it, and it worked out very well. Cassandra's also a big reader. She introduced me to the author Italo Calvino, one of my favorite authors, and I know we both read a lot of Raymond Carver and talked about his stories. She's also tuned into a lot of amazing things in the world of popular culture. She just has great taste. For example, she shared the movie Grey Gardens, the haunting documentary from 1975 you may have heard of. Not the remake, but the original. And she turned me on to the comedian Louis C.K., whom I absolutely love. She was also the person who made the brilliant suggestion, suggestion that I move to Northampton in the Pioneer Valley. So she's had a big impact on my life. Not only that, she's a smart and savvy woman. She happens to be a civil engineer. Not only is she a rarity for being a woman's civil engineer, she's actually at the top of her field. She's the chief engineer for the city of Medford. So that means she, she understands math and science, and she's responsible for all sorts of crucial city on infrastructure projects that everyone depends on. Complicated logistic stuff that totally eludes my understanding. When we were younger in Boston, we used to go to a lot of dance clubs and we'd get all dressed up and then go out on the town to live it up. We spent a lot of time at this one club called Axis, and Cassandra always knew where to go. She knew her way up around Boston and she also had a car. We shared a love for dancing. She was really my only friend and is the only enduring friend I've ever had who's both intellectual, practical minded, artistic, and into partying though I have to say we've both calmed down a lot in that department. But even more than that, Cassandra has always been a genuine, all-around kind and supportive friend. Once, actually, when I was really down, she told me that what she liked most about me was that I was real. And just those few words had such a powerful effect on me that I never forgot them. It was like she let a little light into my darkness when she said that at a time when I really needed it. So I'm excited that she's, she's agreed to come on the show today and let me interview her. Hey, Cassandra, welcome to the show. Hi, Amy. Thank you for that kind
1: introduction.
0: Well, it's great to have you here, and it's definitely from my heart. So you know, um, you're aware that childhood has been an ongoing theme in many of my interviews with people, and so I'm going to be asking you about your childhood, too. Let's start with this. What was your earliest or one of your earliest memories as a kid? Do you have like one memory that you go back to?
1: I remember the I probably was about two and a half years old and my father was working on a house. that He was building himself. He would go to work all day, come home and then go to this house he was constructing. And we were moving in. My mother tells me it was around June and I was um, standing outside one of the windows and looking down into it because the basement then had one of those window wells which is really unusual for a lot of people you know it lets light into the basement but it doesn't really look like a window so I'm once again I must have been like two two and a half years old and I was just looking into this strange space and wondering probably in my little two and a half year old head what was that
0: wow that's a really interesting memory, and it, it's, it really does kind of evoke that kind of cloudy feeling that I, I think that kids have, like, just wondering, what is this? Where am I? Where does this window lead to?
1: I'd agree. I mean, I think a lot of um, young childhood, you are sort of in a cloud, you know, because you don't really need to have to worry about on-the-ground things. Someone's always taking care of that for you.
0: Yeah, and that's true. And also, I think it's like you're just kind of becoming aware of yourself. Like as a baby, you're just kind of learning what do your senses do and, you know, moving your fingers. And then as you get older, you're starting to see outside of yourself and learn about the world. So um, what were you into as a kid? Did you have particular hobbies or interests?
1: I was... um well, I was a big reader, like you mentioned. You know, I started reading pretty young. My sister was seven years older than me, and when I was born, she really wanted me to be her age immediately, so that was kind of frustrating for her, she says. So when I was old enough to do anything, like read or or do arithmetic, she taught me all of that, and um, we wove a lot of stories together. I also was very interested in the outdoors. My mother had a vast number of gardens, and she gave me my own spot in the back, maybe to... Not the best spot in the in the landscape in case I messed it up or something, but it was mine, and I tended it really carefully and was proud of what grew every spring.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you were really interested in, in gardening as well?
1: I was, and it's something I've carried to today. I was just out in the garden this morning. But yes, I was interested in growing things. I was always playing in the dirt. I was playing games called cars and trucks and things like that, and never knowing I'd actually be involved in it in my career. And also because there weren't any girls in my neighborhood, there was just one other girl down the street, so a lot of the kids I played with were boys. I was pretty much a tomboy.
0: Mm -hmm. So does that mean you were playing a lot of active physical games?
1: Oh, sure. Climbing trees, riding bikes, um, you know, playing in the dirt, going to the beach just about every day in the summer because we lived pretty close to it. Really being outdoors, I mean, it was a beautiful time in the, I guess, in, in society when kids could go outside and just get lost in the woods, and not, nobody really panicked about that because the parents knew that we'd be home, you know, we'd be home by dinner time.
0: Yeah, and I always kind of envy you that you had that kind of freedom to just sort of roam around on your own independently, because that's, that was a very different experience for me growing up in New York City. Things were a lot more regulated in that way.
1: True, true. No, I would go into the woods, and then I would concoct fantasies. Like I remember uh, there was a place I called the Enchanted Forest, or maybe my sister called it the Enchanted Forest, because we used to read a lot of um, Old Mother Westwind and those kinds of books. And I was uh, just in there, and I'd bring my friends, and I would like make up the stuff, like, you know, this is where the deer live, and that's where the rabbits are. And I have one rem- memory of when I'm um, sitting there crouching by a rabbit hole, which probably was not a rabbit hole, and just a hole in the ground, and my sister comes marching up to me and grabs me and says, you know, you've been crouching in poison ivy. I had to go back home and then sit in the bathtub of some kind of concoction to try to make sure that I didn't get poison ivy. Wow.
0: Wow. So your sister had a big influence on you and, and she led you to a lot of activities as well and also kind of saved you, rescued you at that moment, I guess.
1: Yeah, she was my guiding light, you know, and as older siblings can be, a little bit of a tormentor. You know, she'd tell me, things that were um, completely untrue, like my belly button would turn, you know, 90 degrees and split, and I'd grow a second butt, or she would, you know, make, (laughs) say that there were monsters in the closet, and I'd lie in bed at night staring at the closet waiting for the monsters to come out. Things like that, you know, typical older sibling stuff.
0: Wow, that's pretty scary. I mean, did she ever, did she reassure you at times as well? Did she ever play the other role?
1: I don't remember her saying it was only a game, but mm-hmm. I didn't mind. I mean, there was an element of me that sort of found it thrilling to be a little bit scared. You know, I thought that that was okay in life to not worry about, you know, for example, Halloween was always fun because you could be out in the dark completely and you didn't know who might jump out at you, but that was the whole point of Halloween. And mm-hmm. usually nobody ever did jump out at you. So,
0: Right. Halloween is one of those things that's super regulated now for children. I mean... Did you really get that experience of being able to wander around from, building to, from house to house?
1: Well, we did. We did go out on our own a lot because my mother stayed back and handed out things. My father would come out with us in the early years. He liked this woman on our street. She, had, she made special gingerbread men, and so he always had to have one of those. But as we got a little bit older, we were definitely on our own, and, and the street was shaped sort of like a wishbone. So there wasn't that you really couldn't go that far, you know, you were sort of contained on that in that neighborhood.
0: Did you ever pull the trick? You know, the trick or treat?
1: Oh yes, yes, I did. I'm kind of ashamed of it. I toilet papered someone's house. Wow. And, yeah.
0: Well, I'm sure you weren't doing that alone. Were you you were with a group of kids.
1: Yeah, I had accomplices. I mm-hmm. didn't do it by myself. And it's a lot of fun actually to throw a roll of toilet paper out to the tree and watch it come down as a big ribbon, and then take it and throw it up again. But the, uh-huh. the cleanup, I, I'm sure the parents hated us for that.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just interesting, though, because Halloween is supposed to have a little bit of, like you said, this sort of uh, slightly dangerous or naughty feeling to it, and um, a lot of that's been white—you know kind of anesthetized now. Like with I know in the building that I lived in, they, they even had a sign-up for people who agreed to allow children to come to their door. So there was really no risk of the trick, part of the trick-or-treat.
1: Did you have, um, was the razor blade and the apple stories circulating around New York? uh,
0: Yes, yes, definitely, and poison candy. Um, But the thing about signing up, that only came later. I mean, when I was a kid, we did go trick-or-treating, but I think it might have been that we went to somebody's home for some kind of party. But I do remember going, you know, through apartment buildings from one apartment to another and really you didn't know who was going to answer the door and there was that sense of anticipation surprise not knowing what's going to happen
1: right and it's sort of you're you're intruding on someone else's space but at the same time it's sort of sanctioned because it's halloween so it's something we'd never be allowed to do any other day of the year, We should just walk up to some stranger's door and <laughs> knock on it and say trick or treat.
0: Right, and it's like the whole holidays like is this transcending barriers because here you are dressed like a creature or some in some crazy costume and then also, you know, behaving differently. But yeah, then it can also get dangerous with people doing really detrimental things too. So, uh, but back to your childhood, what did you, um, did you have, you know how kids have answers to certain questions, like you're always asked, what did you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you have an answer to that question?
1: I'm not really sure. I mean, I think I wanted to be a dancer when I was little, and I did take dancing and, and ballet and baton classes. My father decided I was going to be a doctor, and then that disappointed him later on when I didn't become one, but he said, you know, I had this photographic memory, and all I needed to do is, you know, that's all that medicine is, photographic memory. <laughs> that's how he dismissed it, even though he's fascinated by medicine. So dancer, probably anything to do with animals, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And do
0: you remember any particular experiences that impacted you strongly as a child or maybe even a child or a teenager that sort of shifted your worldview in some way?
1: Well, something that shifted my worldview and I was not quite a teenager. I was about 12 years old. My mother took me to the movie A Lady Sings the Blues. Do you remember that film with Diana Ross portraying oh, yeah. Billie Holiday? Right, I do
0: remember. Mm-hmm.
1: So I had, you know, I grew up in a very white town. There was only um, there was one dark-skinned person who came from Africa, I think, as an exchange student and was gone. I didn't even know that, know that person. So it was my introduction to the travails of the South and, and what happened to people of color and, and just seeing, like watching in, in shock, you know, as, as images of men being lynched and how she's being treated. I thought, I can't believe that people do that to each other.
0: Mm-hmm. How old were you when you saw that film?
1: I think I was about 12.
0: Did you talk to anyone about it afterwards?
1: I'm not sure. I don't remember. It just it just it rattled me, and I thought, "This is really unfair. This is injustice." And how could anyone get away with that? You know, I, didn't, mm-hmm. I always thought it never occurred to me that anybody would be lower than higher than anyone else. Even though there's a pecking order mm-hmm. in school, you know where the popular kids are. You know if you're not a popular kid, but right. that nothing that bad would ever happen to you.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because, like you said, you were you grew up. It was in Maine, right? Did you grow up in Stockholm? Yes, you know, it's it's been interesting as I get older to see how I was in such a bubble. I mean, I'm still in a bubble, but more so in a bubble, I think, when we're young. And just the fact that you don't question that, oh, why are all my friends white and there's no people of darker skin color in my neighborhood you know that doesn't even cross your mind or the fact that when i was growing up in new york i never went to certain streets that were only a few streets away i didn't go to school in a certain way that i could have gone to school
1: right i mean we're not i wasn't exposed to it as a regular part of life i used to go back to new york my mother grew up in the bronx and the south bronx as she she tells it and we would go back to new york to visit my grandmother and then my aunt, and occasionally, you know, I'd see people of different races and origins and all of that, and I would just be very wide-eyed, and they said, they tell a story. I was probably two or three, and I said something about the chocolate lady. <laughs> I <just laughs> never, You know, I never saw anyone of that skin color uh-huh. before, and I, I equated it with chocolate, which mm-hmm. sounds kind of del- delicious, but, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that was my take on it. And I would see people, mm-hmm. I remember seeing I was probably about four, there was a man who was missing his lower legs. And he was on the train, and he was eye-level with me, and I just it was, like, not prepared for that, not prepared for the fact that he had shoes, but they pointed backwards. So, you know, you just, you're, you don't know how to process these things. You're wide-eyed, and you're, mm-hmm. you come up with the closest statement you can, if you can think at all, and then you go back to your ordinary life with everybody who looks like you, like you said.
0: Mm-hmm. So, That's a really good point, that you are having to draw from whatever limited experience you have as a child, and so you you um, don't know, like, well, what's appropriate to say, what's not appropriate. You just have to work with the tools and the language that you have.
1: Exactly. So chocolate, you mm-hmm.
0: know, right.
1: was the, cl- the only thing I could come up with.
0: Mm-hmm. And was there anything that puzzled you about the world, like maybe the adult world in particular? Any misconceptions that you remember?
1: I don't think so, so much. I mean, I know the adults, they were sort of like in this, layer the stratum above me you know they had their their work and their parties and the things that they did that were adult things and we had things that we did that we were kid things I mean, we didn't really cross over so i was very eager to become an adult um i felt like they had entry to some magical world that we were not allowed into
0: do you remember kind of wishing for, you know, privileges of an adult, like wishing you could eat ice cream every day or something like that?
1: Oh, absolutely. Being able to go to bed whenever I felt like it. I mean, we went, I wasn't allowed to watch all of The Wizard of Oz for like the first 10 years of my life. I had to go to bed halfway through time for bed. Oh, that's terrible. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, hmm. no, my father was very rigid that way. And, uh, you know, so you're just like you're, gr- you're grinding your teeth saying someday I will be big enough to watch The Wizard of Oz all the way through or big enough to, you know, go here or do that. I mean, I had freedoms. I got on my bike and I rode out of my neighborhood and down the road and did those kinds of things. But um, there were certain things, like if you saved your money to buy a toy or something, you know, you first of all, your, your parents tell you, you know, you can't have that unless you save your own money. Okay, so you save your money and then you, you're ready for it, then they say you can't have it. You know, just just sort of capricious. Really? Maybe did you have capric- that
0: experience? You saved your money and did everything yep. right, and then you still couldn't get what you were hoping for.
1: Right. It was this kind of um, fiber optic lamp that turned colors. You know, as it as it swiveled, It's one of those seventies things that everybody had to have, and I really, really wanted one. And I don't. I think it was something like thirty dollars. And my father's like, "No, you can't have it until you unless you save your own money." And then he just said, "I couldn't have it." But eventually, I figured out a way to get it, and I had it. You probably now you're not talking about
0: a lava lamp, by any chance, are you?
1: No, it's not a lava lamp. It's one of those. It looks like um, a waterfall. So these little fiber optic strands, and so the light goes through them, and there's a disc, you know, red, blue, green, maybe yellow, Mm -hmm. and as as it turns, the the fiber, the little fibers change color. Mm -hmm. So imagine something that's sort of a. um, like a waterfall effect. Anyway, it was the rage along with black lights.
0: Right. But eventually you made sure you got one, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, I did. I did. It was very entertaining.
0: (laughs) About The Wizard of Oz, I'm surprised that you weren't taken to the movie theater to see The Wizard of Oz. I I feel like I saw it at the theater. Did you?
1: As as a, um, what do they call that? Repertory. They didn't come out with movies in repertory in Maine. We had original film. So I I do remember Bambi when it came out. Mm-hmm. I was probably five or six. But if something was, because Wizard of Oz was 1939, they'd never show it again on the big screen.
0: Let me ask you something about Bambi. I know this woman who was traumatized by the fact that I think Bambi's mother was killed. Did that traumatize you as a kid?
1: No. No, it didn't. I mean, because... I mean, I was sad, that I'm not not traumatized because that was a part of the story, and then it swept into a whole nother plot line. Right. So I just I just went with it.
0: Yeah, I guess everybody every kid has different sensitivities. What do you think it is, or about childhood experiences, or do you even agree that to me it seems like they're more profound than adult experiences? Do you Do you agree with that?
1: Well, they're they're more they're more new. They're more fresh. I mean, you. Can't say that the experiences we have as adults are all that unique and different. When as a child you're just starting out, so everything you do maybe makes a a certain imprint upon you. So that could have a sense of being profound, but I'm not sure. I think childhood is just—it's—it's strange because here you you are—you know—you know—you harbor a child inside of you, but then also those those experiences and those memories—you know—also can seem very different almost foreign
0: the experiences that you had as a child
1: well and just thinking about them because they were so so you know they're sort of in a time capsule and even as you you bring them out and dust them off and look at them you're thinking am I remembering this accurately you right. know is, is the memory is it you know someone said um nostalgia is to memory as aspirin is to penicillin you know it's just you, you get you get wound up in a sense of nostalgia for it and maybe that's not the real memory so then there's that that's not the real memory, then what's the real experience? so you you're trying to tease out all of that.
0: Yeah, that's true. Memory is very imperfect and, uh, and that's even been shown scientifically. So I know you mentioned your older sister, and it sounds like she was really important to you. Can you tell me more about that?
1: She was because she was you know the first person I looked at who wasn't super tall. You know she was my closer to my size she was she would engage with me she would tell me stories she told me that uh she was always weaving some kind of imaginary tale that we had a a um knight of armor you know knight in in shining armor cigarette lighter of all things that was about six inches tall and it sat on a bookshelf so she told me that was alive there was a spirit inside of it you know we we um wove the stories about Tigger and Winnie the Pooh. She used to read them to me all the time. We created these creatures called Savagos that were sort of like five-legged horses. We just you know, embarked on imaginary journeys. And then she was older, you know, and she distanced herself from all those things and was going out. You know, she'd go out a lot and, you know, it seemed to be exciting and dangerous places. So I really was intrigued by all that. You know, it's like I wanted to be at her level. I wanted to do what she was doing. And everything she did, she always said was really interesting and exciting. So I agreed with her.
0: So were were you sort of not able to join her at that point because you were younger?
1: Right, I was. I was much younger. I wasn't allowed to, to travel in those circles. I mean, if you're you're seven years apart, you know, you, it's almost like being an only child again. And then my younger brother was six years younger than me, so there wasn't that sense of siblinghood that a lot of people have when you're two, three years apart, and you're either doing stuff together or you're fighting a lot. When my sister and I fought, and I remember physically fighting, like not punching, but you know, wrestling, mm-hmm. going through the house, like bumping into things, and my mother yelling at us and telling us to stop, and <laughs> that kind of stuff. But it wasn't that frequent because we didn't really have that much to fight over. And we fought over what TV show to watch. I know she wanted to watch The Beatles desperately, and I desperately wanted to watch Walt Disney. And I was really mad, you know, if she won, and she was really mad if I won.
0: I think it's really interesting that even though you were seven years apart, you were so close because, I mean, I was, you know, three years or I'm three years apart from my brother. And maybe it also has to do with brother-sister relationships versus sister-sister relationships. But it was I was definitely, you know, he was the big brother and had his world of friends and I was the little sister and our worlds were pretty separate.
1: Well, I think my sister... Maybe because she was so much older than me, she had a role in taking care of me, so she would babysit me when my parents would out. Perhaps her brother didn't do that. I don't know, and so she would bring me out if it was a scary movie, she'd drag me out of bed to watch it with her mm-hmm. yeah you know, she would she did she very much liked family, although she needed to get away from family in order to be close to it later on in life, and I think she was she wanted me to be more oh so much more like her. But to show me what the things she liked and to show me her world, and I was just ready to mop it all up. You know, I was very Mm. excited by anything she did.
0: Yeah, you were kind of like a um, an instant fan that she could always go to. In a way, it was probably bolstered her ego too.
1: Right, I was a member of the fan club. You know, anything she she did was just you know something I couldn't wait to do myself, whether it was healthy or unhealthy. I was on that path.
0: And I have to ask you about the five-legged horses. Can you tell me where that came from and what that was all about?
1: I have no idea where it started, but we had a chalkboard in the bedroom, and we would draw on it. And some one day, I drew or she drew this horse-like thing that had five pointy legs, and we came up with a name, Savago. And I don't even—I wish I knew the, the precise origin. Maybe she remembered, but you know, she's no longer. Um, alive, so she can't really tell me.
0: Right. Savago, what a great name. And so would you actually kind of tell stories about the five-legged horse?
1: We did, and we would call each other Silly Savagos. Mm. Anything you did that was really goofy, you were Silly Savago.
0: Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very sorry about your sister. I know that's... Thank you. A ...real loss. And I want to ask you... About other friendships you had as a kid, uh, what do you think makes kid friendships different from adult friendships, first of all? Or do you think they're,
1: they're different? Um, in some ways, I think they're similar because you become friends by proximity. And that also happens with adults. You become friends with people that you're a part of the same group. We became fr- I became friends with this girl in my neighborhood because she was the only other girl in my neighborhood and she was my age, one year older. Um, we didn't have a lot in common. I think that doesn't quite answer your question, but I think it's partly proximity, right? Right. I think that's you're, a good point. Yeah. You're, you're together. We were together. We got on the bus together. We lived near each other. Our mothers were friends. That also happens with adults if you have children and your children are friends and you might become socially connected to the adults. We didn't stay friends, you know, because you, you don't like adults. You have to have a lot in common or certain certain interests, and after a while, just living in the same on the same street doesn't cut it anymore. So you drift apart and find your own friend, which is what I did with my friend Polly. She became my best friend for quite a long time, mm-hmm. and she she was somebody I had to get on my bike and ride down and see her. And my parents weren't friends with her parents, although they had gone to school together. My father went to school with her father, so mm-hmm. they, he knew he knew him from when he was a boy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point about proximity. And now um, I think it's, this is a good time to take a little break and uh, listen to some music, and we're going to return in just a few minutes. and we're back. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining us, welcome. This is Under the Surface and you're listening to WXOJ LP Northampton on the air at 103.3 FM and live streaming on the internet at valleyfreeradio.org. And we just heard a song called Manhattan by Cat Power. And I thought it was interesting because um, I w- we've just been talking about Cassandra's childhood, and she was talking about friendship, and there was a part in the beginning about friends and people coming and going, which seems sort of apropos to our conversation. And I'm here with my guest, who's also a close friend of mine, Cassandra Kudelaitis. And we're talking a lot about Cassandra's childhood. Are you still with us, Cassandra?
1: I am, great.
0: Yes. Um, and I wanted to ask you, did you ever have an experience being bullied as a child?
1: not uh not in the conventional sense when you say you know you think of a bully who who haunts you and takes your lunch money and things like that. You know, I've had times when I was pushed down or or got an ice ball in the face, or one time a kid threw a big clump of these um I call burrs. they're like these sticky things that grow out in fields, and he made a ball out of them and threw them in my hair. My mother had to come to school and like one by one try to take out the tangles. Wow. Yeah, that was painful. She said she did it at the school so that I wouldn't scream. <laughs> it's like a good tactic, I suppose.
0: Wait, she wanted you to scream?
1: No, she didn't want me. She I think she thought that if I was in public, I wouldn't be, you know, so dramatic, but I wasn't very a dramatic kid anyway. They kept they always praised me for how stoic I was. Mm-hmm. So no, no to the bully or a a bully. I mean, in high school, I got picked on a lot, you know, didn't have the right clothes, didn't look the right way. But I think that was just part of the caste system, and I was definitely down, you know, in the lower caste.
0: Mm -hmm. So you had more like, um, you were more of a quiet person with a few good friends in high school?
1: I had a core group of friends, and I won't say that we were all misfits, because one of them was on track to... Get her get her diploma and go off to college, but it was a it was a group of girls who didn't fit into conventional society,
0: yeah, that's pretty similar to me. I'm sure that's a lot of the reason why we connect so well and what about teachers? Did you have any important teachers in your life who profoundly affected you?
1: No, actually, not in high school anyway. I mean, I remember one teacher who actually aggravated me because he predicted that I would end up in jail really what? <laughs> Yes, I think he didn't like my attitude. He said something like, you know, you're going to end up in jail or whatever. And I just thought, yeah, oh, yeah, I'll show you.
0: Yeah, you definitely did show him. I wish you could I wish you could show him who you, who you are today. Sure. <laughs> you're definitely the opposite of what he predicted. But how cruel to somebody in that position who knows that they have, a, you know, so much power over children to affect their self-esteem and their self-image that they would say that to you.
1: Yeah, I think he was, you know, they're human, teachers are human, and uh, it must have been something he sn- is, you couldn't keep his his cool or something. I don't think I did anything all that terrible. You know, I spent more time in high school out of school than in school because I was so miserable there, so it may have been my performance. You know, I had teachers that I sort of liked along the way or teachers that stuck out, you know, whether they were uh, physically different or some style that they had. But um, no, he was, I don't know, maybe he was kind of a jerk. Who knows?
0: Do you think he picked on you because you were not at school that much or because of your more stoic manner?
1: must have been my attitude at the time. He was the health teacher. It wasn't like anything I really needed to be at. I was a poor student and I left school early. I actually got my diploma in my junior year through a correspondence course, I told my parents that I would start college early if they just let me out of high school. So they agreed, and I did, and I just left. I didn't go to prom or graduation or anything wow. like that. Wow. So, so why did you hate high
0: school so much? I don't even, want, even know why I have to ask that, because I, I hated high school too, but I'd like to hear your answer.
1: The social. Socially, it was just a really terrible time. Once again, you know, if you're not mm-hmm. in, the, in the popular group, you're not pretty, you're not... Uh, you're not a hanger on to the popular kids because I, I saw earlier, probably in fourth or fifth grade, that I could have stood in the fringe of all this popularity, but I didn't really want to be like that. It felt like it being a hypocrite. So I drifted in a different direction, which made me kind of an oddball. So
0: mm-hmm. did you find that there was a time when you liked school? You know, when you were younger. But oh, then absolutely. It, it switched it, it changed. Yeah.
1: It just changed. It was almost like a switch flicked and I went from Having friends, having fun, doing well, to having no friends, having no fun, and then plummeting and, and dropping classes and moving into the lowest of the echelon in terms of academics just so I could avoid certain people. I wouldn't take the bus. I, I, do, I just made all kinds of efforts to get away from everybody. And I started hanging out with people who are 10, ten years older than me because. They didn't do that kind of stuff. You know, they were more mature.
0: Yeah. And it seems like there's more awareness of bullying and how damaging that can be now than there was when we were kids.
1: Exactly. Yes, I would agree with that, even though bullying is still very persistent and pervasive. And I also think, too, that there's a bit of overkill with the word bully, because somebody will say, oh, you bullied me. But I'll think, like, well, that's not really bullying. Mm -hmm. You know, someone being mean or, you know, on a certain occasion or 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 not being very attentive, it seems like the pendulum is swung completely the opposite way.
0: Well I think bullying really meant that somebody would repeatedly be picking on a person. Is that your definition?
1: Right. You're targeted repeatedly picked on.
0: Right. And it's like they're they're just it's their goal to bring you down every day.
1: Yes, yeah. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm.
0: So you didn't have that kind of thing, but it was more just the just the feeling of this caste system in high school that really turned you off.
1: Right. Random incidents, or if you walked past a group of guys, they would say stuff about you, but they didn't come after you to say stuff about you. They would just, you know, you tried to stay out of their field of vision.
0: Right. Yeah. And it seems like when you go through puberty, there's this all of a sudden, it's like, oh, your body. People are looking at your body, and especially as a woman, like you were saying, this pressure to try to look pretty, and you know, are you, you know, are do you, do you have breasts at the right time or whatever? You know, all these terrible pressures that have nothing to do with who you are inside.
1: Right. I mean, even do you even have breasts? You know, do right. even, are you even growing any? And in in right. I didn't have. Once, you know My sister was gone. She went to California. I was 15, and my mother was distracted with two younger kids, and I didn't really have anybody to take me to get my hair cut or to you know, apply nail polish or things like that. I wasn't the one who would buy copies of the fashion magazines and study them and then try different hairstyles on a Friday night. It just wasn't me.
0: Right. When your family members had a conflict or an argument... How is it handled? Because I know every family has sort of a different way of dealing with with that. Some families are very communicative and really discuss things, and other families just sort of brush things under the rug and move on.
1: We had we were big rug brushers. <laughs> we had so many things under the rug, you'd be tripping. You know, my, it'd be shouting mostly from my father, and then um, he would get over it in twenty minutes, and the rest of us would just try to deal. My mother, you know, would brood or. Or we would brood ourselves or try to say, okay, the the sun came out now, so it's safe to come out, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and so did you find that then you were able to just sort of move on, but it would take you longer probably, it sounds like, than it would take your father?
1: Right. Being of Greek heritage, I would say that he, he could get volatile and blow up and then be over it. And then the German side, which is my mother's side, you know, it's, if, we, if we look at ethnocentric behavior or something, you know, those are the brooders, those are the ones that it bioaccumulates. And, and so, you know, I would build up a certain level of resentment toward him over certain things he said or did, and I couldn't shrug them off and move on. Of course, I was the one they were being said or done to, or my sister was the one they were being said or done to, so that might have made a difference.
0: Do you remember ever um, really standing up to him and confronting him? about these things.
1: When he was going after her, I would rush to her defense. You know, I would I would charge at him with a broom or the vacuum cleaner or something. She'd be calling in the other you know, calling me for help in the other room. And I would do that. But not as a kid, you know, I really just wanted to avoid trouble. I saw the kind of trouble she got into and I said, I don't want any of that. So where she was defiant and confrontational, I became a shadow and I just You know, disappeared.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. But when you, I picture you with a vacuum cleaner or the broom, was that because your father was going after your sister physically? Yes. Wow. That's really scary that you were dealing with that. And do you, have you ever talked to your father about that as an adult?
1: Well, not so much. I mean, my mother brings it up and he, he doesn't deny it. And he did apologize to my sister. I think one of the things that, he may not realize is that the person who observes it is also a victim. You know, you have the person who's being—I don't know if I'd call it abuse, but that kind of punishment. Because she was dishing it right back at him too. But then I'm watching it from the sideline, and then you develop a certain anxiety about it. Like, oh, well, maybe it's going to turn and, and be leveled at me.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's a really good point. Um, that the person who witnesses it is also a victim. And also I found it interesting something you said about how your sister was really defiant and sort of outspoken and that you kind of became more of the shadow. Right. Is that something that you think then really kind of shaped you as an adult?
1: Oh, definitely. You know, because it was a defense mechanism and it became, it started when I was probably about nine or ten. That's when everything hit the fan at my house. And it was my my strategy for survival, and I think that followed me through high school and into adulthood. Rather, you know, always being told, "Don't make waves. Don't rock the boat."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you do you find yourself when you're in a situation that could become kind of explosive, that you want to just sort of disappear leave. at those moments,
1: right? Get up and leave. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I I'm wondering about more of the positive aspects of your childhood that you talked about before. And I'm just wondering, what do you miss the most about being a kid? Or is there anything?
1: Oh, there's a lot that I miss about being a kid. And it's a sense of wonder. It's a sense of feeling things directly, you know, just being outside in the sun, feeling the sun that day, without any thought about what you might have to do later. You know, there was no real big to-do list. I miss the feeling of being protected. You know, I felt I felt loved and sheltered and protective my relatives, the adults reminded me. I just think of like Easter Island statues. You know, they they were on the board boundary, you know, facing the ocean and we were protected inside.
0: By these statues you're talking about?
1: Right. You know how those statues ring Easter Island is sort of I, I don't think they're for storm or anything, but I felt like my my relatives, the adults were the were the protecting statues. They were the ones who, you know, guarded the, the edges, and we were the kids inside of that, and they took care of us.
0: And you felt that way even despite your father's kind of um, angry temper at times?
1: Well, yes, because he, first of all, he was, you know, I never thought of it really as abuse. I mean, it was pretty standard discipline back then. And I'm thinking, like, you know, when I describe this to you, I'm thinking of the first 10 years of my life, it's sort of I could break it into the first nine years, nine to ten years, and then the second nine to ten years. So the first nine to ten were, were pretty idyllic. You know, There was, there was um, a sense of harmony. My mother didn't fight back. She just wanted to keep the peace in the family. So whenever there was a blow-up, you know, it ended pretty quickly. She started standing up to him when he started going after my sister. And then that, that changed. There was more arguing in the house than my sister arguing, and then I started to feel differently about it. Of course, my adolescence, as I described to you, you know, is pretty miserable.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you find that certain um, intense impressions formed as a child or as a teenager, probably more as a child, do they ever surface as an adult? You know, for example, I've I've used this example before that uh, I find I'm very moved if I see something, even like a lamp that reminds me of my childhood home, and it, it's as if that object has has something more significance beyond itself?
1: I think so. My sister worked in a prop house in California, and I visited there one day, and I saw a lot of the furniture that we used to have in the house, and it it brought me back. You know, it's definitely a sense of attachment to what your early memory was, your your, your furniture you You know, we didn't move around. The house that my father built is still standing. He still lives in it. Um, Some of the furniture is still there. So I would say yes.
0: Mm-hmm. And were you raised with any specific religion of any kind? And if so, how did you interpret that as a child?
1: We were brought to the Methodist Church, which is a, a branch of the Protestant uh, faith. And it wasn't very, you know, a went to Sunday school, went to church, there was talk about God. I started to question God when I was about 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old, and I thought, you know, How could there be a God if all these bad things happen? And then I didn't want to go to Sunday school anymore, and and then nobody made me. My father said it was the mother's job to teach religion. He was raised Greek Orthodox. My mother was raised Lutheran. She picked the Methodist Church. And I think she continued going for quite a while after that because she felt sorry that it was such a small congregation, so she wanted to help them out.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you decided um, that God didn't exist when you were about 10?
1: Yeah, probably more like 12. I I really questioned the whole idea about God and Jesus and all of this. I felt it was too confining and too um, rigid and that there was no proof and that there were other religions that were equally valid.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you think about death at all as a child or about the idea of reincarnation?
1: I did. I remember I had a, I had a number of relatives who died. I had animals that died. I remember seeing what I thought was a vision of my grandmother. She died when I was eight. You know, sitting in a chair um at night and I told my family that and they thought they told me that that was a, a reincarnation of her, that the Greeks I guess believed that you come back. So I thought that there was something to do with that.
0: So even though you you was this before or after you decided that God didn't exist?
1: It was before.
0: Oh, okay, so after you just made that came to that conclusion, you no longer thought that reincarnation was possible.
1: I sort of am answering that question from today, but perhaps I thought reincarnation was possible for quite a long time until I reached some point in my adulthood where I felt that the only reincarnation there is is being converted into something in the soil. But yes, reincarnation was a possibility. I I followed astrology and and tarot and and things like that, you know, was always interested in mysticism and supernatural events and read stories about magic. I would love to see magic in the world, you know, that would be wonderful. I think that's one thing that I miss about childhood is that magic was more believable.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely miss that too. Have you ever had a direct memory from childhood as an adult now? You know, maybe sometimes it's from a physical object that triggers a memory that you thought you'd forgotten that's still sort of there under the surface?
1: Yes, they do come, and I and I can't really pinpoint one right now, but I, frust- I'm frustrated and wondering, like, where did all the memories go? You know, you, you think about all these experiences you have every day as a child, where you went, what you did, and that is stored away in some little box in your brain somewhere. And wouldn't it be great to unlock those so that the memories you could have could somehow be some fresh memories, not just the same stories that you tell yourself or that you tell other people?
0: Yeah. One one way you can maybe do that to some degree is if you have letters, if you have old letters that you can read or, or if you kept a diary. Did you do that?
1: I did keep a diary, and I've wondered what I did with it. It's one of those little diaries that has a lock. You know, that uh, It slides into something, and it comes with a key. And I have letters that I sent to my friends and my cousin Gregory, who I was really close to. He lived in New York. And then letters they sent to me. And so someday I'll, I'll dust them off. Maybe there'll be some, some stories some things that we did. I try to think about you know, what I did if I went to the beach. Did I collect starfish that day or sand dollars? You know, just to try to 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 provoke a new memory,
0: yeah, you know sometimes i i I try to imagine what it would be like, and this is um, inspired by your what by what you were just saying about where our memories go and if we could revisit them, and I imagine what what would it be like if we could take our adult consciousness back into our child world, if we could be a child again at a specific point in time, but have our adult knowledge <laughs> What do you think? Like, I think about that in terms of bullies, like what I might say to a bully. But then again, maybe when I'm back in the moment, I wouldn't be able to do it, you know?
1: Right. Yeah, and I think that if you took, I mean, you'd you'd want to be able to to cherry pick, because I don't want to take all of my adult knowledge back to being a child, because I think that would wreck childhood, because I would carry all the responsibility and worry with me. You know, I certainly wish I could go back and relive high school to understand that... um, things I know now about how to deal with people could have been applied then and that a lot of kids really weren't bad kids. You know, they were struggling too. And if I only got together with them, we could have had, you know, better strength in numbers as opposed to being all of us being isolated and ostracized.
0: That's true. That's a really good point that everybody was having their own struggles. We've had a great conversation. I really enjoyed this.
1: Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, and I want to say you've been listening to Under the Surface, and I'm Amy Landau. I've been talking to my friend Cassandra Kudelaitis. And Cassandra, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. It's been such a pleasure having you here. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. Please tune in again next week, Sunday 11 to 12 noon, or you can listen to my podcast, Under the Surface, on Facebook. And enjoy the rest of your morning and have a great week.